0: I'd now like to just quickly introduce our our moderator for the evening. Associate Professor Carolyn Orchison is the Director of the Centre for Sustainability at the University of Otago. She has more than 10 years of applied social science research experience focusing on rural, community and tourism resilience related to earthquake, tsunami and climate-related hazards. Carolyn co-leads the Rural Programme for the Resilience to Nature's Challenges National Science Challenge, is an associate director for the Quake Core, and is the science lead for Project AF8, an award-winning multi-agency Alpine Fault response planning initiative. Indeed, so <laughs> I think she's got a big door on her office. <laughs> Norera Tenakoto Tenakoto Tenatato Katoa.
1: Kia ora, thanks Dave. Inga e mana, Inga e ngā reo, e ngā karangaranga o te motu, tēnā koutou. Greetings to the mana, the voices that I hear calling from across the motu. Ka mihi ahau ki ngā mana whenua o nei tākiwa. Ki ngā, kia Ngāitahu, nati ngā Mamoi e Waitaha. Greetings also to the people of this land. Hei mihi hoki, Kia a kua hui hui maine. Welcome to everyone gathered here too. Yes, I'm Caroline Orcheston and it's an absolute ple- pleasure and privilege to be here tonight with you and I'm really excited to have this conversation with Tim. I've had um, a number of catch-ups with him in the last couple of days and like Ingrid, I absolutely loved the session this afternoon at the theatre just learning um, more about Tim's wonderful skill set, I'm sure you'll be impressed when you hear his bio in a moment. Um, So thank you everyone for coming along tonight and it's wonderful to see so many faces, lots of friends in the audience too, so so wonderful. Um, I'd also like to thank uh, Tash Beckman, uh, Director Aotearoa New Zealand and the Pacific at the British Council and the British High Commission uh, for bringing Tim Jackson out to be with us and um, also thanks to the New Zealand International Science Festival team and Jerome, uh, thanks so much for all of your work to bring this wonderful programme together and I hope you've all enjoyed uh, the last few days of taking part in some of those activities. So, Tenakwe Tim. It's, it's so special and wonderful to have you here in Dunedin with us and thank you for dragging yourself away from what was, I think, quite wonderful summer weather over in the UK at the moment. So it's wonderful. It's summer, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so how, how to introduce a man like Tim in just a few minutes. I'm going to try my best, but uh, I, I will take a couple of minutes just to describe some of his wonderful um, expertise and skill sets that he's developed during his career. So Tim is a professor at the Center for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity at the University of Surrey. He holds degrees in mathematics, philosophy, and in physics. He's perhaps best known as an ecological economist. He began talking about circular economy in the late 1980s. And for more than 30 years, he's tackled the hard questions about sustainable uh, production and consumption and environmental and social limits to growth. Prosperity Without Growth, his book published in 2009, developed from a report Tim wrote for the UK government And while it didn't land particularly well with the Prime Minister of the time, it went on (laughs) to become an award-winning critique of economic growth and prosperity and the damage it was causing to people and the planet. Tim is also highly creative, as we all learnt this afternoon, if you were lucky enough to be there. He's an award-winning playwright, novelist and lover of creative arts. He's written plays for the BBC and more latterly, these contributions have brought together his love of science Uh, and bringing those environmental issues into the public domain through radio. It's fair to say he's a man of many talents, uh, with both his right and left side of his brain fully engaged and very productive. Tim's relationship with New Zealand began with his first visit here in 2007, and in 2016 he became a Hillary laureate. Uh, which is New Zealand's version of, uh, you know, a Nobel Peace Prize, essentially, for his vision of achieving prosperity in a world of environmental and social limits. For the last five years, he's been a member of the um, New Zealand Sustainability Advisory Panel. So, the focus of this evening's conversation with with Tim is this wonderful book, Uh, Post-Growth, Growth uh, growth Life After Capitalism, it was released in 2021, and it provides a critique of contemporary capitalism through storytelling. You'll be pleased to hear storytelling in there, because it really does offer a a lovely dimension to the book. It gives us a vision of a different kind of society. It points to the kinds of objectives societies could pursue to uh, refocus away from the damaging emphasis on economic growth. I think it's a very hopeful book, and it's about how we can find balance by cooperating to drive creativity that attends to the physical, the mental, the spiritual, and also the emotional needs of us as humans. So tonight, Tim and I will start with some conversation, and then I'd like you to store up your questions, all of your burning questions. We're going to save the last half hour or so to really delve into your, your thoughts and your um, contributions, contributions to the conversation then. So, I look forward to those questions. so Tim, I'm curious, this amazing brain of yours. Tell us a bit about your upbringing because I'd love to know what how, how it shaped you into the human you are today.
2: <laughs> wow, okay. Um, you know, I was just a kid from a I would say kind of lower middle class background in the u k. My dad was an engineer, my mum was a physiotherapist. I was the second of six kids, which is a position that it characterizes. Responsibility without power, and I, th- <laughs> I think I think I adopted that as my life strategy, and it's become my life's work. So um, it, it's it was uh, you know actually my dad at some point was also a lay preacher, and 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 so that was influential I think in the morality that I grew up in the world in, um, but I kind of moved away from it as soon as I discovered girls more or less, and and then and then but then found myself coming back to it later in life, um, because. I mean, you know, maybe something we'll get to because I think that you know something that religion held in the world for us disappeared with capitalism, and and it was a, it, it was an important thing for society, mm-hmm. and whatever that function was that religion was playing in a less secular world kind of went missing, and I felt at some level I felt that even though I'd run away from religion, I kind of felt, you know, the the, the dry world of rational science that I was being educated in was. Um, was one that was missing something. And for me, part of what was missing was that creativity, which is why I deliberately sort of undertook a strategy of keeping that going in my life. First, first, particularly through drama at university, and then the drama actually turned into what I thought was gonna become my career in playwriting. I moved from university to London, I'd sold my first play to the BBC, and then I got the check through the post and I realised I was going to do something else. Have to do something else to, to keep the wolf from the door. So I started waiting on tables in London just to uh, survive, really. And and on in April uh, 1986, Chernobyl Reactor Number Four melted down, and it kind of changed my life. It was a very, you know, it was one of those moments of a catastrophe happening, even though it was in a country a long way away, which had a profound effect on the way we thought about providing energy in in the economy and i suddenly realized actually you know i hadn't even seen this technology creep up on us on us but i had some skills that might be useful to create change and so i walked through the offices of greenpeace london the day after it happened and said what can you do with a physicist who thinks he's a playwright and they set me working on the economics of renewable energy and i became almost overnight an accidental economist and and that particular bit of my career never stopped calling on me for the last 35 years
1: If anyone hasn't seen that Chernobyl uh, drama on TV you must watch it, it's an incredible science communication I think, great storytelling So the book... um, I think was largely written during lockdown in 2020 and it must have been a really interesting time to reflect. I mean, you're, I had this vision of you at your, in your study writing the book, which was very different from my own COVID lockdown experience of three kids and lots of dishes and, you know, always demands for <laughs> bandwidth or food or something. But for you, you had this opportunity to sit and think and, and, and write. And so, so can you set the scene and give us an idea of what you were trying to achieve with the book?
2: Yeah, yeah, and thank you for cutting the sofa in half and putting it on stage as two armchairs. It's, a, it's. A, I feel very much at home here. Uh, the, <laughs> the sofa is the part of the story of the book and what we're trying to do in the book. And um, uh, maybe I just go back a step and I talk about the first, the not the first book, but the predecessor to that, which was Prosperity Without Grace. And and a sort of slightly funny story about the genesis of Prosperity Without Growth, which also happened in a space that would not otherwise have been available to me because I was recovering for an operation. And I mean, my, my job leading CUSP and various other research groups is very demanding. So having the space to write a book is quite a difficult thing to find. And I was working at the time for um, the Sustainable Development Commission. As you say, it started its life as a report, but I was just, and, and the chair of the commission, Jonathan Porritt, who's well-known in New Zealand, of course, um, was kind of getting a little impatient. You know, when's, where's this report coming from, Tim? When's it coming? And I said, it's coming, it's coming. And then I had this operation, and I, had all, I took all my notes with me to hospital. And I knew I was gonna be in the hospital for a few days. And, and so the day, as I came out of the operation, I pulled out my folder of notes and started working on them. And the nurse came into the room and she said, you realise you're still on morphine, don't you? <laughs> and that really is the story of the genesis of the book called Prosperity Without Grace. <laughs> it, was, it was a challenging report. It challenged, challenged something that economists and mathematicians and politicians hold fundamental to our sense of progress, which is progress is equivalent to uh, expanding the economy, Uh, creating more, more opportunity, more jobs, having more things, having greater technology, expanding something called the GDP, the gross domestic product, which is this measure of how busy the economy is, and that going on more or less forever. And back in the 1970s, of course, the Club of Rome had published a very influential influential book called The Limits to Growth which questioned that and it caused a furore at the time but in the intervening three decades or so that debate had kind of settled down to a place where, where no, we don't believe in limits anymore. Economics can fix it. Economics knows how to be more efficient. It encourages technology. It encourages innovation. We'll solve all those problems through technology and we'll be able to go on growing forever And and yet in that the, that vision, that idea, had not solved the problem of climate change. Climate change had got worse. It hadn't solved biodiversity. Biodiversity loss had got worse. It hadn't solved water pollution. It hadn't solved the decimation of fish stocks. All of those problems were accumulating and accumulating. And the growth-based model of how to get progress was still dominant in economics and and in politics in particular. And so so when Jonathan and I sat down. To, to, to sort of think about what are you going to do, Tim, now that you're Economics Commissioner on the Sustainable Development Commission. That was the decision we made. We would we would and it was a decision that changed my life, to be perfectly honest, because I you know I sat down to write that report after that operation. And I was doing my best to make it as you know wonderful and logical and perfect as possible. And all the arguments and all the evidence laid out and then presented it in the face of government and fully expecting, in my naivety, that government would listen, things would change. And they didn't. Surprise, surprise. You know, you mentioned a little bit of that. It was quite furious at times, the backlash. Um, But, and this is something that I feel profoundly grateful for, there are a lot of people in the world who can follow the simple logic expanding economy into finite planet doesn't go. Ultimately, at some point, something has to give. And those people came out of the, you know, I'd like to say the woodwork, but they came. some of them came from the 1970s debate. So I would go to events and I would have octogenarian veterans of the Limits to Growth debate coming up to me. And there was one, one of them particularly stuck a camera in my face and took a photo and said, that's one for the bulletin board, and then introduced himself as Dennis Meadows, one of the lead authors of that. Um, 1972 report, and the other people, and and it came from everywhere. It was that like, you know kids would come to those lectures. Um, I would be invited into theatres, into museums, into um, uh, uh, local schools, into strangely investment banks, into businesses. I, I, everybody seemed to want to have that conversation, which we'd been told we shouldn't have. The only people, well, a couple of sets of people, maybe a few economists slightly resistant to the idea, possibly still. I'm told there's some economists in the audience. I think it's the ones with their arms folded. (laughs) You can always tell from body language. You don't have to agree with me. I don't mind. I love being disagreed with. But I just think it's an important conversation to have. And then politicians, of course, politicians were also really kind of resistant to that idea. But the audience for that, you know, it took me all over the place, really all over the place, and and you know, it was the behind that wonderful award of the Hillary laureate, and it was behind a lot of other things as well, and it brought me into contact with so many people who've kind of enriched that conversation. It's a conversation that's really, sort of expanded in the intervening 20, 14 years or so. Um, but when I sat down, you know, when I sat down to, to to think about it all and in that period of the COVID lockdown. I had actually started writing the book before, but I tore up most of what I, writ- I, I had written by the time it came to the COVID. And what I, what I would think I was trying to do was to write something that was not a government report, that was not about statistics, that was not all left-brain logical argument, that was telling the stories of the intellectual heroes who had guided... My thinking and humanity's thinking for millennia. And, and through those stories, to articulate a kind of a countercultural view, a view that challenges the idea that economic growth can go on forever, but also challenges who we are as a society, asks us to ask again who we are as a society, and thinks about capitalism not as something that has ended. There was a lot of talk at that time, you know, capitalism is dead. And it came from some very capitalistic people, Mark Benioff, who is the chief executive of Salesforce, proclaimed at the Davos meeting in 2021, capitalism is dead. But then he proceeded to talk about all the kinds of capitalism that we still want. So it was kind of capitalism is dead, long live capitalism. And it was kind of sustainable capitalism, smart capitalism, green capitalism, woke capitalism. And and it was and 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 what to me, and I was at that Davos meeting, actually, not particularly where he was speaking, but I was invited there by Deutsche Bank to give a talk about, to the title, Is Growth an Illusion?, which was an extraordinary thing to be in the Davos meeting, which has been about growth for kind of 50 years. But that, you know, that idea, that gave me a kind of title, a subtitle for the book, that idea that, of course... Capitalism is not always going to be our system of social organization because no system of social organization works and lasts forever. Eventually, its own contradictions trip it up and we move into something else and we don't know what that something else is. And it's not about is it capitalism or is it communism? It's about the reality that in evolutionary terms, in anthropological terms, we move from social system to social system. This one is creaking at the sea. And it's time to think about something different. So that was really, and it was a perfect space to do it because within a few weeks of that Davos meeting, actually capitalism was kind of put on hold, almost literally. And for a few short months, we had a kind of experiment in a different kind of way of thinking about society and a different set of priorities. So it was a kind of perfect time to to think about that and to write the book.
1: Yeah, you talk quite a bit about consumerism and obviously the problems with it, and there's a very, um, well, I'd say thrashed quote from your TED talk, which is that spending money, you know, people are spending money we don't have on things we don't need to create impressions that people that won't last on people we don't care about. <laughs> I just think it just speaks so much to the, to the time, doesn't it? And, you know, we, we think more and more about prosperity in different ways, and I think, it, you know, what do you mean by prosperity and how does it relate to the way we live our lives today?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, that, that was, in a sense, that was the start of my inquiry in prosperity without grace. And I was very struck when I was thinking about that by some literature around poverty. There was some study, a study that had been done around poverty in the UK in the 1970s. And it made such a cogent argument that poverty is not just about money. Poverty is about life chances. It's about access. It's about community. It's about our relationship to the natural world. Poverty can take all of these forms. And that's not to say that monetary poverty doesn't matter. But it is to say that human well-being cannot be fixed... In a purely monetary way. And some of what we've given away by thinking of progress in that monetary way is this richer sense of what it means to be human, to have possibilities, to live well. And the the first story in the book actually is about Robert Kennedy. And and there is there's a poster speech for the critique of GDP that Robert Kennedy gave in. March 1968, the beginning of his presidential campaign, ill-fated presidential campaign, as it turned out, where he critiqued the GDP. And, and when we, the people who, like myself, who were working on this critique of GDP found that speech, it was like saying, hang on a minute, this is a guy who wanted to be president of the most powerful nation on the earth, critiquing the GDP. And we loved it. You know, it was a fantastic critique. He ends it by saying the GDP measures everything in short except that which makes life worthwhile. But it does it does so much more that speech. I mean it it was, it was just it's really worth visiting and revisiting. And I managed to get hold of the speechwriter who helped him write the speech and talk about the speech and where it came from, because it has within it not just that critique of the GDP, but a critique of a, a culture that sees prosperity cashed out in monetary terms and doesn't see beyond that. And what Kennedy was trying to do in that speech actually was to ground it in this broader vision of prosperity as, as dignity and moral purpose and participation in the life of society and the ability to do and to have those things. And and the idea that that is not something that should Ever just be the preserve of the privileged and the elite and the rich? It is something which is an absolute right and a responsibility of society to deliver to everyone. And I, you know, I think, and I think, you know, when I one of the things I kind of want want, wanted the book to do and wanted to want to emphasize here is that these kind of richer ideas are already out there. They've been talked about by people for millennia. And that broader sense of prosperity that gets lost inside the simple equation of capitalism that money equals success is actually a f- much more fundamentally based in, in scientific understanding, in anthropological understanding, in psychological understanding than we ever tend to give it credit for.
1: Obviously, not all types of growth are bad, um, what sorts of things should we encourage in terms of growth, and what should we be trying to, you know, curtail, globally?
2: Well, I think you know, prosperity without growth put put forward this very kind, of almost simplistic. I because I was asked to present it in all sorts of places, I ended up distilling it into you know all sorts of policies, policy prescriptions, and there was a whole chapter on policy, which was totally ignored by government. But there was also a kind of instant formula, if you like, establish the limits. You know, know where those limits are. If you're living in a world in which you don't even know where the edge of the world is and you run as fast as you can in, the, in whatever direction, then you're going to fall off it. And, and so you need to know where those limits are. You need to know how much carbon we can afford to put in the atmosphere. Establish those limits. Make them a part of your sense of where you're going in society. Fix the economics because they are profoundly broken. They encourage almost everything except that which we need to be doing. I mean, think of the simple... You know, the simple thing, one of the simple things that happened in the pandemic, it taught us how badly treated the frontline workers were. The people who saved our lives, you know, the people who actually were fundamentally necessary through the pandemic, systematically denigrated through capitalism. The economics is just profoundly wrong. And so you can see that and you can see, begin to see the places to fix it and change the social logic because it's a social logic which suggests that more and more is always better and better. And that's not just bad for the planet is actually bad for us and and putting a different metaphor in its place is really important so that doesn't mean that nothing grows you know things one of one of the metaphors i like to use and it's central to post growth really is that prosperity is better thought of as being about health than about wealth And health is about balance. You mentioned that question of balance before. Health is about having more when you don't have enough, but it's actually sometimes about having less when you have too much. And the World Health Organization tells us, and it's a staggering statistic, that more people die from diseases of overconsumption, obesity, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, than die of undernutrition. It's not to say that people dying of undernutrition isn't important. Of course it is. But that sense that actually capitalism rushes past the point of balance, doesn't recognize it when it finds it, and wouldn't be able to stop if it could see it, that's, you know, that's profoundly uh, – it's, it's a real critique of the kind of system that we've developed. Are there places where we want growth? Of course there are. We want growth in renewable energy. We want – degrowth in carbon energy we want growth in human understanding we want degrowth in those things that lead the human spirit astray we want growth in our connection to each other we want growth in our sense of care for each other there are all sorts of wonderful things that we want to grow but they are not necessarily delivered by concentrating on the growth and the accumulation of monetary output
1: Yeah, so we're facing a future where we need degrowth, essentially, aren't we? And in your recent Nature paper, you outlined five uh, key strategies or solutions that we could be considering to, um, you know, achieve this degrowth. And um, you talked about obviously reducing unnecessary production, you know, fossil fuels, fast fashion is obviously a really big, big one. Um, Reducing the retirement age was one that popped out to my eye, and I think we talk about this quite a bit in New Zealand in terms of actually making the retirement age older. But you're suggesting bring it back, encourage part-time work, encourage four-day working weeks. So, can you give us an example somewhere in the globe of where some of these more creative solutions are actually having an impact? And you know, what effect are they going to have on degrowth?
2: Yeah, I would say, just in passing, that that paper was a. Multi-author paper from a lot of degrowth authors, um, Jason Hickel and Jorgos and Callas in particular led the writing of that. And, and I'm personally, I'm slightly ambivalent about the work thing. And maybe it's something that we could come back to because there's a lot in the degrowth movement that talks about uh, working less, having a shorter working week, work, not working so long in life. I, I, and that is happening. There are experiments there that, that are trying that out. And there's another experiment which is very, very popular in the degrowth movement around universal basic income. So you know, if you pay everybody a minimum, then they can choose what they do, and then people will choose to do good things in society rather than chasing around after money because they're so insecure. And that's a very strong idea. It goes back to a philosopher called Andre Gortz writing back in the 1960s, and actually arguably even further than that to Thomas More, writing in the, whenever Thomas More was, archbishop of wherever he was archbishop of i'm showing my distance from my church upbringing at this point in time um but the point is that these are really some of them are really you know fascinating ideas about reorganizing society and andre gortz thought of the universal basic income as as a sort of stealth strategy like a trojan horse because it would undermine the work ethic of relentless capitalism and it would allow people to do different things. It would give people support to do good things in life, to volunteer, to engage in care, to be the carers that are constantly underpaid, to reward that sort of work. And those are really, really very good kinds of of um, of mechanisms. Some, the, you know, the universal basic income experiments in Alaska, for example, has been there was um, another one that flowed out of a furlough scheme in Europe. There are many places where these kind of little experiments have happened, and and but I think the one the one thing that I, and in, in both post growth and prosperity that growth I I wrote about this is that there is something about work that's gone missing. Work is kind of a sort of wage slavery under capitalism, and in fact the, it, there's a wonderful book called The Human Condition by Hannah Arendt, where she distinguishes labour from work and labour follows really from the you know the medical terminology of labour it starts with childbirth and it goes on through care and sustenance it's all the jobs of the frontline workers and and as we've already seen capitalism kind of denigrates that work it devalues that work most of the time but that labour I should say and then and then Aaron goes on to say to distinguish that sort of subsistence level Labor from what she calls work. And it's a very, very interesting distinction. What she says is, you know, once the work, the everyday labor of life is done, as subsistence is done, our immediate physical needs are fulfilled, what happens? We look up and we see our own mortality. We look up from the hard graft and the sweat and the grind. And we look up from the rest and relaxation that comes at the end of the day from engaging in that. And we have so much time to spend that we see the end of our lives and the implications of that for our sense of meaning and purpose in the world. And work, in Hannah Arendt's view, is that part of our spending of human time that's engaged in creating durability in the world because our own mortality is so frightening for us. And then you ask the question, what happens to work under capitalism? And you, and this is really fascinating because actually durability is totally inimical to capitalism. When things last, you don't need to produce so much of them. You don't need to sell so much of them. You don't need to consume so much of them. So actually capitalism does the absolute opposite. It aims for the lack of durability. It aims for things falling apart. It aims for structural obsolescence so that it can continue... Cumulative drive, and so what has capitalism? It's destroyed and denigrated the labour that keeps us alive, and it's undermined the integrity of the thing that gives us hope for the future. And so it's a staggering—I think it's a staggering critique—and it's absolutely central, I think, to the way we have to think about change because we have to think back to work as being something that is a meaningful engagement in the life of society and in the sense of durability, in the sense of progress society can have.
1: Absolutely. I'd like to talk about New Zealand for a bit, because here we are. We have um, you know, a, a unique set of characteristics. We're remote, we have very productive lands, we rely heavily on agricultural exports, we grow enough food for 40 million people worldwide. We're also highly exposed to natural hazards and risks. And at the same time, I think we, we could consider ourselves world leaders in lots of ways. The way, for example, that we responded to COVID, we have this lovely history of nuclear-free status here in New Zealand. And, of course, our government, we've had a, they've had a, a focus on well-being uh, through including natural, economic and social capitals in their policy decision-making for a number of years now, too. So the stage should be set for positive change and transition in New Zealand. But change is slow. Um, so I'm wondering how would you comment on the degrowth journey that New Zealand is is undertaking from your perspective?
2: Well, let me say I'm a big fan of that idea of the living standards framework and the wellbeing budget, and and it did actually precede the Labour government by quite some time. It was you know it was brought to the fore by the Labour government, coalition governments as it as it was then. Um, I think the first living standards framework was t- 2019, so just before the pandemic, and that and and I had been engaged actually from quite a way before with some of the Treasury economists who were developing that. And um, and, and what was really striking about that was that it... That those kinds of different ways of measuring those indicator sets, they exist. They're all over the world in lots of different places. There's the Gross National Happiness in Bhutan. There's a set of statistics in the UK. There's, you know, other frameworks in the OECD. They exist. But mostly they're denigrated to statistical offices or the Department for the Environment. The worthy departments. What was significant about what happened with the well-being budget was that it happened inside Treasury. And that's where it needs to be, because actually that's where you need that change to happen. So that you know, that's a very positive thing. And actually when you go around the world, it's like an export. The living standards framework is a national export for New Zealand, because it's an it's a almost unique case study of a country trying to do something different and doing it from within. inside Treasury and talking about the goal of progress as well-being rather than just increasing growth. So that that's really good. And then you know I do think that in resource terms New Zealand has enormous opportunities and I think I'm not just talking about physical resources as well I'm talking about cultural resources for doing things differently. You, you know if you're a resource dependent nation then your position in an international world is a difficult one if you suddenly make the decision to degrow because you have to still trade with your neighbours, you're still open to competition, and of course that competition does exist too in primary resources, but you're in a much stronger position. And if you also have kind of cultural resources to do things differently, then with good, strong leadership, you can take decisions in a nation like New Zealand that you can't really take so easily in Europe, or even on the fringes of Europe, which is where we now live, apparently. So, you know, that's... that's <laughs> <laughs> oh, you heard about Brexit. OK. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and actually, you mentioned my work with Air New Zealand. You know, one of the things that really struck me very early on with um, Air New Zealand was that it's 51% owned by... It's probably more now by the, by the New Zealand government. That means that, in principle, the New Zealand government could do what it likes with Air New Zealand. It can make it become... A sustainable airline, or, or as Jonathan Porritt likes to call it, the least unsustainable airline in the world, <laughs> and 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 yet actually there's been a sort of ideological resistance to that idea, and it, which persists, and it actually started with Christopher Luxon, who was the first CEO that was there when I was first on that advisory panel, and we used to make that argument inside the inside the panel. You know, you can you can do this because, actually, at that point. Um, air new zealand hadn't sold any equity for years they were cash rich and they were also 51 percent owned by government you could do almost anything inside a company with that sort of structure and yet it, it didn't you know it was resisted for almost ideological reasons to make those changes and then through covid of course you know air new zealand was massively hit by covid um the 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 New Zealand government, your government stepped in and provided a loan to Air New Zealand on terms that were absolutely draconian and had to be paid back. And so they put a financial constraint on the company at exactly the point in time at which it had the opportunity to transform itself into a different kind of beast. And so, you know, even within the the politics of the time, which should have been a favourable politics, that ideological constraint on change still exists even in New Zealand so it's you know it's not that's not unique of course in New Zealand those ideological constraints exist everywhere but I guess I go back to the my point that you know in physical resource terms to some extent in terms of your geography but also in terms of your cultural resources New Zealand is in a in a position of being able to change in a way that some other nations would find much harder
1: yeah and you talk in your book about COVID giving us this opportunity for really radical change. I mean, the government was suddenly able to, able to, you know, guarantee incomes, wages, mortgage holidays, supply chains were quickly reorganised, and, and somehow the finance, finances were available for that at short notice. So it shows that radical change is, is possible. In New Zealand, we've had 13 years of, of several major disasters, starting with the Christchurch earthquake, and more recently... Yeah, Cyclone Gabrielle and the Auckland floods costing the country $1.3 billion in insured losses at this point. So, you know, we have um, these events coming at us more and more frequently. And in responding to Gabrielle during the recovery, the government's priorities have shifted away from some of the climate adaptation and the green policies that they had um, coming. And they've been criticised for that. So, in your opinion, how can governments respond to these crises and disasters while also dealing with climate adaptation and, and degrowth and all of these other things that we need to prioritise for a just transition?
2: Well, I want to—I I think I want to kind of answer that in a couple of ways. That's, one of them is slightly roundabout, so let me come to it in a second. But the first—the first, of course, is that you know we live in a particular economic system that is dependent on the financial structure, on the market conditions. And also on something that we could call the moral sentiments of society—what people will put up with and what they won't put up with—and and and all of those things matter. Um, but the ability, you know, the ability of the government, as you say, to respond in the short term to quite profound shocks is really something that was almost denied in the pre-COVID ideology, mm-hmm. and COVID did highlight that actually the abilities to government to respond is enormous in the short term. And then of course, you know, the conditions are then reimposed on the world, on the finances, on debt, on what's possible and what's not possible. And they're also reimposed through the reaction of people to the curtailment of liberties and the and the responses that people have to that. So I want to come to that second because I think it's a really important part of the argument. But the the, the point about, you know, government's ability to respond, I th- it's not an easy one to answer beyond that short-term acknowledgement that they have much more room to manoeuvre than is ever really acknowledged. and and But I think the starting point, and it was really the starting point for the work that I wanted to happen back in the day when the Sustainable Development Commission was published, is that government needs, has a responsibility to recognise that we may not always have growth under the conditions that we expect and desire it to be. And, and that's really what we're looking at at the moment. We, we don't have that sort of growth. And therefore, we have to understand and to counter what I would call a fundamental growth dependency of the economy. You know, we live with financial institutions that are growth dependent, a pension system that's growth dependent, a care system that's growth dependent. And we are not designing those systems in ways to be growth resilient. We're not designing them in ways that will protect us when actually growth does go away or when we have to slow it down or when our actions to adapt to climate change slow it down. We have to be thinking structurally about a post-growth world. And this is part of the argument here. It's not an easy argument. And it's not an easy solution. It's not a kind of off-the-peg policy like UBI or or four-day week or, or whatever that will solve all those things. It is a responsibility of government to understand that we are, to some extent, already moving and living in a post-growth world. And yet we have a growth-based economics, a growth-based financial system, a growth-based market, and a growth-based politics. And so, you know, that is a real wake-up call. And so it's not an easy answer to your question, but the answer is, I think, that the government must take that responsibility seriously. And if they don't, it's going to be forced on them pretty soon because growth rates in OECD countries have been declining, not since the COVID pandemic, not since the financial crisis in 2007, but since the mid-1960s, growth rates across the OECD countries have been declining and continue to decline. So sooner or later, if not now already, we're in a post-growth world. But I wanted, I wanted to come back to that question of lo- the license that government has. Because, you know, there was a sense when people got people, and you know it here better than even in the UK, that people got sick of lockdown and there was a resistance to that and there was an anger to that and there was a leaping back to a kind of you know consumerism the freedom that consumerism mm-hmm. pretends to offer and so if we and that we have to understand what that is what where that's coming from what it is that consumerism offers to people that makes that freedom so important and and i think and it goes back a little bit to that religious point that i was talking before consumerism offers us a sense of meaning and purpose in the world. It's, it offers us a direction of travel. It offers us a promise of a brighter world for our kids. It offers us a promise, yes, also of you know, the production side and the jobs and the employment that's created. But it's more than that. It's quasi-religious. It's offering sense, meaning, and purpose in a world that has been devoid of it, partly because of the decline in religion. So, so, so consumerism is doing a job, that's what I'm saying. You know, it's not, it's not just that quote from the TED Talk of being this kind of perverse thing. It's actually doing a job, and we have to understand that it's doing that job. And then we also have to understand that it's doing the job badly. So, you know, one of the things that came, comes out of the analysis of consumerism is, and it comes out of that same Hannah Arendt analysis, consumerism is designed to fail. It's designed to dissatisfy us. Because if it doesn't dissatisfy us, then we would be satisfied and we would stop buying things. So, you know, it's it actually the dissatisfaction is what consumerism is, tell, is selling us. It pretends to sell us happiness, pretends to sell us, consum- you know, satisfaction. It pretends to sell us endless opportunity, but it is actually dependent on dissatisfaction. Now, that at first seems absolutely perverse and a place where you, you know you kind of throw up your hands in horror and say, what can we do about that? But actually, it's an enormous opportunity. And I think, and it's another of the sort of themes in post-growth, that it's, it's a, realizing that makes us understand that there are better visions to have, that those visions can be more fulfilling, that those visions can be better ways of life, that those visions can actually keep people engaged and give social license to governments to change in that direction but they have to be thought through seriously and I developed one of those in the book which is which to me is absolutely fascinating it comes from psychology the psychology of flow and flow is something that's talked about a lot by sports people, you know, when you're actually when you're really in the zone and you know, you're one with the tennis racket and the ball and the net and your opponent, everything, your 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 ego disappears. You're just one with the world, this sense of flow. And it's very well understood in sports psychology, but it also exists in lots of other places. It exists in our social environments, it exists in craft, it exists in meditative and contemplative activities. And it's the psychologists have documented that actually. In this state of flow, human beings are more fulfilled, are happier, have a greater sense of well-being than anything delivered by the materialistic consumer economy, which is promising happiness and delivering dissatisfaction. And so all of a sudden, you know, out of what seems to be an intransigent place where we're going totally down the wrong path, there is a place where we have a vision for something that's different, which actually could be thought of as progress, the ability of people to experience this extraordinary state of involvement in the world, of using their energies to create a better world. And that this is a better place to be than capitalism. It's a better place to be than consumerism. But it requires us to build the space for people to achieve that transition. And it offers them a better world than the one we have. And I think that offering is really important because without it, you seem to be saying through degrowth, yes we can the rich can be rich but you guys you know you can't have all of these things and that's never going to work it's ne- and it's not going to work to say you know we're going to lock everyone down and they're going to stay locked down and it's never going to work to sell them a, dr- a dream of consumerism that that's is false it's a, it's it's such a more you know to me at least it's it's like thinking of humanity in a different way. It's asking ourselves the question, who do we want to be? Who could we be? Who could we possibly be? And how do we create the conditions to allow that to be our vision of progress in place of this defunct consumerism? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, that's wonderful. And I I think it's a great segue into the next couple of questions that are really heading more into that right brain, creative space, solutions space, because I think that's probably what we all feel we need at this stage. We have so much bad media, you know, lots of sensational reporting about climate change impacts, um, the consequences, and there's seemingly nothing that that individuals can do about it, as, as you would see reflected by the media. So in my experience in risk communication, for it to be effective, the way that we communicate risk... We need to empower people to do something that's going to make a difference and that people need to hear messages in different ways through different channels to motivate them to do something. And so I'd love to draw on your experience in theatre and and radio and how we might sort of incorporate different ways of communicating now that are going to give that people a sense of empowerment in this space.
2: Yeah. um, When you began the question it kind of prompted a sort of different kind of answer because I think there's all kinds of ways of of communicating, which are really, really important. I think the theatre creates a kind of amazing space where you draw people in and, and where you can where you can have these complex arguments. And as I was saying this afternoon, where you're not preaching at them. You know, some of the characters in your play are people whose views that you fundamentally disagree with. And you, you put them together in, in space, in time, in story. And you, and you watch and you involve the audience in what happens through that debate. And, and it can be profoundly transformational. I, but, I, but it also made me think of something else, which, is, which I think is really, you know, germane to this question of transformation, which is somebody came up to me after the event this afternoon and said, do you have any tips for someone who wants to start creative writing? And I said, Write. And, you know, it's one of those things. <laughs> start writing, and and but but you know, it's it's a little bit trite, and he was probably pissed off with me. But it's kind of actually something which, which is really really. If you want to win that, the gold medal at the Olympics in in one hundred meters, um, I want to do that. How do I start? You run. You get out and run. You run when it's cold. You run when it's dark. You run when it's too hot to move. You run. You run when your legs are tired. You run. And actually, there's a very good philosophy around writing, which is which is, which is is built around that same idea. You write. You get up every morning and you write. Writing becomes your way of life. Writing becomes a way of connecting you to the world. It becomes a way of thinking about your own life. It becomes a form of therapy. Writing is the task that you're in the world for. It's your purpose. And I think, you know, I talk about Tich han in that book, and he has, a, he has a philosophy which sort of generalizes that, which I really, really like, which is, you know, the process of transformation is not an end goal. It is now. It's what you're doing now. And, and he has this kind of idea, um, you know, we're all looking for the way home. And this comes from somebody who moved from Vietnam in the middle of the Vietnam War to go to the U.S. and canvass the U.S. government to stop the war in Vietnam and became expatriated because of it. He couldn't go back to his home and he would wake up in the hotel in the middle of the night saying, where am I? Where am I? Where's my home? I'm so far from home. And then out of that, he developed this absolutely wonderful philosophy. I mean, he trained as a Buddhist monk. But he, it was an engaged Buddhism. He didn't want to sit in a monastery and be happy and be contemplative. He wanted to get out and solve the problems of the world, and he did it sometimes by putting himself in the line of fire to bring food to people who were isolated by the war. He, he was an extraordinary man, and the philosophy that came out of it, which which you know, is really the same in a way as that philosophy of what do you want to do if you want to win, win the Olympics, you run. What do you want to do if you want to become a creative writer, you write. What do you want to do if you want to get home? You recognize that there is no way home. Home is the way. It's a moment of time in which you are engaged in a struggle. And the struggle is always about transition. It's always about moving. And how you decide to move in that moment is what determines where the world goes into the future. And I think I find that enormously empowering. It's not a kind of empowerment of you know, everything will be all right in the end. There's going to be a happy ending and we'll all live happily ever after. It's an empowerment of, of a process of being alive at a point in time when the challenges facing the world are fundamental and enormous and knowing that you have a place in it. Of course you're going to die. We're all going to die. Of course it isn't going to turn out well. It never turns out well. It doesn't <laughs> matter because this moment is the moment in which you are doing and enacting that process of change.
1: I want to talk about young people. I'm a mother of three and my daughter's in the audience here tonight. Um, (laughs) Our secondary school uh, science uh, curriculum is going through uh, change. So this is quite topical. It's being redeveloped. Just this week, there was a big outcry about the lack of fundamental science. There was a lack of physics, chemistry and biology in what they were describing in the draft documents. A big outcry. Now we seem to have these these science topics hidden within these themes of biodiversity, earth history, food, energy and water, and infectious diseases. Uh, Obviously coming from a very multidisciplinary background yourself, you see value in this. So why is it, do you think, that there has been such an outcry when perhaps we really do need to be reshaping the education system to think in different ways like these themes are suggesting, to think more holistically, to bring in mātauranga Māori, which is also coming into the curriculum much more so. I think,
2: you know, when you talk about why there's resistance, we we have to, you know, we have to sort of st- take a step back in a way and, we, and understand that we are our culture. You know, we are our culture. We are capitalists. Possibly even Maori capitalists at this point in time because that culture is, even as it begins to be brought together with the Pakeha culture and the... And the conventional way of living the world has to adapt to that, and it has to, therefore, to some extent, adopt some of its values and lose some of the values that it's trying to protect. And and so, you know, that that seems like I'm saying everything's going to be captured by capitalism, but I'm not. I'm saying that we are a part of that system, and our cultural responses are a part of that system. And we shouldn't be surprised if, when we try to challenge that system, that it meets some resistance but that is not an argument for giving up on the process you know that kind of process remains critically important and you know that and, and and when you think of it in terms of the kids i mean the kids at this point in time are particularly around issues like climate change so articulate so visionary so ready to t- speak truth to power so ready to express their own vision of the world and yet faced with so many kind of challenges we owe them an education system that is fit for purpose in, in dealing with those challenges. And, and so I think, you know, that's to me that that is really important. And I, you know, as the, the one kind of thing that I think is really, you know, perversely very hopeful in terms of the fact that those changes will happen is that education no longer works in the way that it used to work. You can't stand up as a teacher and tell kids what to think anymore because the internet is telling them all sorts of things in a very, very different way. They learn better through the internet than they do from you standing there as a teacher. Your job as a teacher is no longer to tell them what to think, but to allow them to learn the skills to decide from the information that's already out there and they're already surfing which bits are important and how to distinguish what's dross from what glitters. And that, you know, that's a process which is already transforming education it's not in itself strong enough to overcome the kind of capitalistic education system that we've created where the only value out of it is the productivity of our kids. But it is a place where change is already happening and and that's a much more fluid place to make the kinds of changes you're talking about.
1: Yeah, Okay. I'm going to throw the questions in just a minute, so get ready. (laughs) Um, But I think for young people as well, you know, it's, it's the internet, it's the digital environment that they live in. And is there potential to harness the likes of TikTok and, and our youth activism to, you know, to spread more positive messages about the future and, and the things that people can be doing to make a difference as individuals or collectively?
2: Yeah, definitely there, there is that potential. I mean, there are dangers as well, but there's definitely potential. I, I um, spoke, there was a big uh, European Union Parliament event beyond growth in the middle of May, and I went there to speak. I knew the organiser, an MEP called Philippe Lambert, a Green MEP. Very, very dedicated man. And he organised the first of these conferences four years ago. And it was this small kind of half-hearted affair. Three or four hundred people couldn't get any commissioners to it. This time round, he got Ursula von der Leyen there to speak in the opening session. He got commissioners throughout but he also brought in and this was an absolute stroke of genius he brought in the young climate activists and they gave he gave them that conference and he and he excited them into a position where they were articulating and demanding the kind of change and it had a phenomenal energy i mean i've spent my life my professional life speaking to people who are desperate to disagree with me particularly in positions of power and these and so I always temper my language. I you know, I go to place and I'm careful, like I engage the audience, how many economists are there audience? Who's got their arms folded? You know, what are they gonna come at me with? <laughs> question time, question time. And and particularly if it's a political audience, you know, how can I speak a language that they will listen to rather than reject? Which is a very important element of communication, of course. If you reject if people reject you straight away, you can't even have the conversation. You want the conversation. But these kids have an energy, you know so it, it led me that that Difficulty, that kind of countercultural nature of the work that I was doing and the way the people I was speaking to led me into a timidity that these kids do not have. And they were fantastic. I mean, they were just, you know, they had this kind of rhetorical command over the ideas that I've been carefully writing about for 30 years that made me think actually. Thanks, guys. My job is done. I'm redundant. I can go away. I mean, I don't think that's entirely true because there is something that needs to temper that, that articulation, that speaking of truth to power, and it has to temper it with realism. It has be, we have to understand that we're not just voices who can arbitrarily demand change and it will happen. We're part of the culture that's resisting that change. And so the, the, you know that's a process where I think maybe I still have a few things that might be useful for a younger generation. <laughs>
1: Okay, so we're going to um, have two roving mics and I think, Jerome, you're going to come and grab Tim's and I'm going to give Tim mine so that you can go in and around. So raise your hand and I would like to have questions that are preferably a sentence long. Um, if, they, if they drag a little, I might go like this <coughs> and just get to the point because I'm sure there are going to be lots of questions, so we want to be fair and include as many as we can. So uh, first of all, in the front
0: row here, please, Jerome.
3: Hi there, we're...
0: Seem to not be able to discuss tax properly. We seem to uh, be told that we don't want to pay tax, and I see it as one of the major solutions we have is to pay tax. Have you got some comments?
2: Yeah, I think everyone should pay their taxes. <laughs> 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 and sometimes you should think about the tax system and figure out whether it's doing its job properly. And so I, you know, I do believe in the tax system. I believe, you know, I, I think it's a uh, it is a mechanism for redistribution it 's not the only one, but it 's a critically important one when you have such inequalities of income and inequalities of wealth and it 's very difficult to know what else you can do than use a tax system at this point in time other than reallocate assets, which is also a kind of important thing to do but Yes, I broadly agree that um, I was astonished at, about the tax rates that I was told in New Zealand. It seems you pay fewer taxes here than we do in the yeah, u k. No capital, gains. no capital gains tax, no capital tax, no capital gains tax at all
3: no, we'll very limited gains.
2: Mm. and the upper rate of tax comes in at what ninety thousand dollars or so? no no hundred and eighty thousand dollars ninety seven so. thousand pounds yeah. <laughs> Our, our upper rate in the UK comes in at £50,000, and that's forty, which is more than the, pro- the proposal that's coming through at the moment from the Greens. So, you know, I mean, there's room to manoeuvre in tax, I'm sorry to say. And I think if you want a society, then you have to have a government that's able to pay for the welfare of that society. And so it's, it's blindingly obvious. I mean, there are, there are more sophisticated things to say, like, you know, maybe we should tax the things that are bad like pollution and resource use, rather than the things that are good, like work and people's working time. And so, you know, those kinds of transitions which have been talked about for quite a long time, I still think, have a lot to offer.
3: Thank you, <coughs> Um You've mentioned that in the Western economies, largely there's little growth or zero growth. Um, What about economies, capitalist economies like India and China with vast populations, very considerable economic growth, lifting millions out of poverty and and continue to do so? How do you reconcile your post-capitalist view with that?
2: I I think it's... I mean, I think... okay. so let's talk about growth and capitalism slightly separately at this point because I do feel... And I, in a different, you know, depending on what the audience is, I would treat this question of, of, um, of growth itself differently. And, and I would emphasise here that I am talking and was talking when I wrote that report for the UK government about northern governments, about about rich economies. When you look, and, but in the report I also looked at the question of poorer economies, and I looked at the data there in particular, and in that data-driven report, and it's very, very clear that when you increase the income of poor communities, you have massive increases in real prosperity. When you increase the income from round about nothing to around about $10,000, $15,000 per capita, you get a, almost a doubling of life expectancy if you look at the statistical data across nations. That's a real improvement in, 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 um, in people's living conditions, in people, real living conditions. And you look at the same data on... Uh, child mortality, you get a massive decrease in child mortality as your income increases in that early period of, of income growth. You get a massive increase in the participation of education. You make a massive increase in life satisfaction in happiness at that lower end of the income spectrum. So that idea of bringing people out of poverty matters. It really does. And it matters that, you know, that's a place where it isn't that it's not true that prosperity is about all these other things than income. It's that income growth can deliver you a great deal more prosperity than it does for the same increase in a rich economy. And actually, you know, when you look at all the data, you look at the graphs, you get this massive increase in life expectancy. Let's go that way because you'll be looking at the graph that way. Increase in life expectancy, and then it tails off in the rich economies. And sometimes it even declines as growth increases. And that's, you know, that would be a sort of stupidity. It would be kind of tragic in a way but not that important to have people continually chasing after growth at the point when it's actually reversing their prosperity. But it becomes tragic when you realise that actually that position of continually chasing after growth in the rich economies while you're reducing your prosperity is also destroying the planet, and it's preventing the people on the poorest part of the planet to increase their incomes and increase their prosperity. So that you know that's my... I don't stand with those who say we should have no growth anywhere. I do think that the process of achieving that growth in those countries has to be wary of a process of capitalism for the reasons that I talked about before. Because capitalism, you know, might be very good at that early stage of getting you up that growth curve, but it doesn't know where to stop. And it actually introduces institutional elements that increase some of your problems later on. I'm very wary, always, of going to developing countries or even to countries like India and China and saying things like that. I don't think it's my job, particularly as a Brit, for goodness' sake, to go around the world telling people how their economies should run. I think we've got. I hope we've got past that position as a as a as a nation. But I but I I think that conversation is really important about the type of growth, the type of development, the type of social system. Because there are traps that those nations will fall into if they follow a kind of broadly capitalistic Western model.
1: Thank you. You talked about capitalism creaking at the seams. Have you got any imagining or any thinking about the process by which those seams start breaking?
2: It's I, a really good question. I do, at some level, I think we see it all around us. You know, those mechanisms exist in the building, the, the the increasing inequalities that come from a process which is about the appropriation of resources and the accumulation of money, and we see that happening. We see it in big multinational new tech companies without any kind of regulatory guidance from government or or regulation from government we see it in monopoly and oligarchic practices from those big companies that lie outside national boundaries and we see it in the poverty that that's being created in the places left behind by that process we see it in the financial structure of of the the structure of the financial markets you know i think to me the financial crisis in 2007-2008 was a massive crack in the shiny surface of capitalism. And it was papered over at the time, basically, by the good graces of the public purse, bailing out the banks and making things OK. And And that is a process that capitalism actually tends to repeat. It tends to privatise gains and accumulate those gains and, and in smaller and smaller places. And it tends to socialise... Losses and it, and it has done that, and after the financial crisis, you saw a big backlash, the Occupy movement, for example, which was a backlash against that as a result of seeing this crack in the system appear and then, and then of course we were thrust into a period of, of austerity in which actually capitalism tried to even deepen that inequality by continuing to shore up the banks and withdrawing social spending those who were suffering um, in order to balance the books. And, and so, you know, this is a process that's not just cracking at the seams, it's literally falling apart. It left us unprepared for the pandemic, it left us with no fiscal, very little fiscal manoeuvre, countries were already very indebted from that process. And it left us with an alienated population who were disenfranchised from the politics and the rise of nationalism, the rise of the alt-right, the rise of a resistance to the civil power of, of the government itself, which is one of the reasons why we have Brexit. It's one of the reasons why there was Trump in America and Bolsonaro in Brazil. It's one of the reasons for the, the, the sense of instability that, is, that I think is not just creeping through the system, it's now rampaging through the social system Uh, oh I mean social upheaval is to some extent is happening before our eyes and our choices now are sharper than they have ever been and whether that social upheaval becomes something you know much more unpleasant depends on those choices and you know to me that's what kind of drives me really in a sense you know it's not about some you know mad idealistic vision it's not about some academic paper that i want to write it's a sense of the society for my kids which i don't think is structurally functional anymore and and actually our choices really matter in that situation and our resistance to the forces that are trying to disintegrate society further in the process of accumulating wealth also matters you know that's 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 a fundamental process we have to stand up and say there is a line in the sand and this is not the way that progress looks in a civilized society
3: Thank you. It just feels like things are so agonisingly slow to change and I just wondered if you could comment on that and if there are ways of trying to unite people more. You know, I mean it just feels like there's not enough time to, to, to change enough and you know, our task at the minute I mean you're doing your part by you know, spreading this information and discussing this but I don't know, I just wondered what your ideas might be on how we could um, somehow make the most of all the people that do feel this way and do see the need to change um, to do something in a, in a timely fashion. It just feels that seems a you know big black box for me.
2: Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, I don't I know that I have any kind of silver bullet answers to that. I'm beginning to realize, actually, that one of the reasons why it was so nice doing the playwriting panel this afternoon was that nobody wanted me to provide any answers to anything. <laughs> um, we never know when change is going to happen. We never know how fast it's going to happen. We look like we're rabbits in the mode with the headlights coming towards us, and there's a real danger of freezing in that position. And I think that is my principal answer to your question, is that, that we don't freeze that we keep our wits about us, we keep our awareness about us, we find the places where we can change in ourselves, we find the places where we can change in our work and and work for that change. And we give up on the idea that that's necessarily going to be successful. Because the idea that it's going to be successful is a place where you feel like your work is one day going to be done, and it's never going to be done. And actually it becomes, in a sense, it undermines your motivation to work. So, you know... We all want to be the savior of the world. Everybody wants that. You know, everyone wants to be the good guy. There's no no difference really across humanity in that sense. But but ultimately, you know, this is a social process with its own timescales in which any individual seems powerless, except that every individual is a part of that change in some way. And so that process of kind of just keeping your eyes open and not worrying about the headlights, to me, is the key. And 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 I you know i fully accept that that doesn't answer your question properly
3: <laughs> <laughs> so you talk about wealth in the word, uh, world and some of it is stacked Inherent to, uh, by inheritance, you become very rich, or by corruption, greed, and other things. There is human psychology which is somewhat unresponsive to, to change.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's, it is an interesting perspective. I, I, tend to think, I don't tend to think of human psychology as being resistant to change. And I think it's one of the tools of capitalism to sell us a vision of ourselves as kind of greedy, hedonistic, novelty-seeking consumers. I, I, think, you know, I think there are much more complicated processes going on. This is actually a place where I would like to play an extract from one of my plays, but unfortunately we haven't got the kit here today. And Marty's sitting there, but I don't think he can solve it without... No, sorry, thanks. And, and, but but it's a, it, it was a kind of revelation that came to me through one of the characters in one of the plays that I was writing. Um, and, and it was a kind of challenge to the idea that we're all greedy and that that psychology is locking us into these patterns. And, and, and it's the, it is, to some extent supposedly a driving force of capitalism but it actually doesn't hold much water in terms of underlying psychology and there are selfish aspects to to human beings, to human nature um, we're not all angels and, and neither are we all devils we have both angels and devils in us we have self-seeking behaviour we have hedonistic behaviour, we have novelty-seeking behaviour, but we also care about tradition, we care about the stability of our social groups who care about our children and their future. We're other regarding in all sorts of ways, sometimes in astonishing ways people are altruistic and it was a lesson from the pandemic as well that you know, In I don't know if it happened here but in the UK shortly after the lockdown the government launched a volunteer responder system to support the NHS in what was obviously going to be a semi-catastrophic situation in the space of 10 days, seven hundred and fifty thousand people signed up to be a part of that system and it's a sort of an indication you know that, that 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 we to some extent are victims of our culture but actually our human nature transcends our culture by preserving those values that we can actually use as solutions to these problems and and yet we still have to recognize and this was the point where this character of the play came in that it isn't so much about greed as it is about the way in which in a given society we seek security we seek to keep ourselves out of the gutter it's not greed that has us climbing over each other to get to the top it's the distance from the gutter and we know that gutter is there we know the sewer is there we know there are these unfortunate people I mean I was talking in Wellington earlier on and Unfortunately, I have to say, I haven't seen it in Dunedin, but in Wellington, I I was really struck after four years with the number of homeless people on the street. Poverty exists, abject poverty exists, is frightening. It frightens all of us. One of the reasons we walk past it is we can't stand the idea there but for the grace of God go I. And that's, that's a reality of the human condition. Security and the need for security is a reality of the human condition. It's a much more profound need than the need for greed, the greed that is supposed to be the basis of our progress and the basis of capitalism. And I think when you transfer that idea, it's not greed that has us climbing over each other, it's actually a sense of insecurity. It's our need for insecurity. Then you have many more solutions to go for. And they range, it seems to me, from a a vision of progress that recognizes the basic need for security in human beings and provides a safety net that catches those that fall to that process that I was talking about before of, to some extent, recognizing that fundamentally, existentially, it is we are insecure and finding mechanisms through which in personal and collective ways we deal with that sense of insecurity in a, in a fashion that is not destructive of other people and is not destructive of the planet. I know that's Putin, I mean, of course, it's a really good point. It's a really, can I just, have we got time to just talk about that point? Because, could you repeat that? The point is about Putin. Now, this may not be the time to get into the politics of NATO. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. But i accept that the example of someone like putin the existence of something that looks destructive and almost looks almost evil and has the propensity to destroy human life and possibly human life altogether is a fundamental challenge to our humanity i accept that i i don't you know i think ultimately you know if you were to Sort of psychoanalyse Putin, you would find a tormented character with uh, ideological positions that are built around insecurity, and that NATO has heightened that insecurity by many of its actions, particularly since 2014, if not prior to that. And so, you know, he is to some extent us. He is a shadow of us. He's a shadow of what we've tried to create in this bright, shiny view of what progress is, and we have to, to some extent, accept that but we also have to deal with the reality of destructive people in our society. And, and I, you know, I think that you're, it's the philosophical ground on which you're on there has to accept your part in the responsibility of that, but it has to be firm and adamant in resisting what I would call a form of kind of toxic masculinity that is actually being propagated in our society as part of that general falling apart of society that we've seen under capitalism. And, and, you know, to me, I, I, this is very personal to me because I sat down to write a book, a follow-up sequel to this, which was kind of around the ideas that I talk about in the book about prosperity as health, and economy, therefore, is about care. And I'm confronted, you know, almost as soon as I start writing that book, I'm confronted with actually what is, a, you know, a fundamentally oppressive, aggressive action by a national leader. Um, with Whatever you think about the historical roots of that, you know, to condone what's happening there in terms of the loss of life is is absolutely out of you know, out of bounds. And and it's it's almost war is anathema to care. War is a place where care cannot take place. Care is the first casualty of war. And and actually, you know, that militaristic aggression which actually is fundamentally masculine in its energy, is in direct opposition to the energy of care, which is in many cases seventy five percent of care workers in the world are Women. And so there is something going on in that value basis that challenges this deeply fundamental level. Uh, but, but I don't believe that that is about, you know, I don't, as I was saying before, I don't think that's a flaw in our nature. I think it is a flaw in our society. And actually, the, the mechanisms to deal with it and to heal with it and to heal it are at the social level mm. and the psychological, psychological level and, and call on us never to accept or believe the myths that are propagated in defense of a vision of progress that is fundamentally suspect. And I think to some extent we are victims of that in terms of the way that we deal with and the way the press deals with the war in Ukraine. I think they're all hoping for us. Tino Koto, Tino Koto, Tino Koto ki
0: te tui. Uh, um, kia ora. thank you for your mahi. Um, thank you for coming. I was, um this isn't really a question,
3: but I was like I'd just like to say, I would love it if you would uh, support some mana whenua, some
0: Indigenous um, stories in your in your playwork. work. Um, I I personally believe that. Um, uh, indigenous stories have a lot of these solutions that we're asking for and have uh, worked through these things in the millennia past um, so Kia ora,
2: thank you um, I would love to I would love to do that and I think you know in the sense I also want to acknowledge that many of the things that I have talked about you know to Western governments and with, with clever books over a long period of time are already well embedded in Indigenous thinking and are happening in many, many places around the world. So I, I totally acknowledge that. Thank you.
1: Kelda. Okay. Well, it's left to me to thank Tim for his generosity. Uh, you've talked about these issues so many times before, Tim, and I honestly I was so grateful for the time you've taken to have this conversation tonight. And I think everyone is probably feeling, you know, a mixture of of hopefully more optimism than pessimism now. But uh, thank you so much, and I'd, I'd love to ask you all to join with me to thank Tim for his time with us. Thanks to all of you as well. Ngā mihi nui a katoa for all of you coming along tonight.